You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. CFOs and controllers, there's a better way to manage cards, expenses, travel, and reimbursements. You need a unified spend platform from Brex that lets you control all your spend in one place, automate compliance, and close the books faster. Get started at Brex.com. Today on the podcast is my fourth in a series of looking at previous Broadway seasons. And for this episode, I'm talking with Broadway leading man, Douglas Sills. From Scarlet Pimpernel, The Addams Family National Tour, Little Shop of Horrors, and numerous other Broadway and touring productions. But at one point, he gave up acting altogether. And in our conversation, he shares what brought him back to acting and why he left again. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, and this is Why I'll Never Make It. I've had to sort of kill this dream of being an actor. Now I've seen it from further away. I realize you aren't killing it. You're you're putting it in the freezer for a while. Welcome and thank you for joining me again here on the podcast, featuring conversations with creatives about the realities of a career in the entertainment industry, the challenges, the setbacks, and how we overcome them. The website is winmepodcast.com. Douglas Sills is someone that I met doing the Adams Family National Tour, which started in 2011 and ran through 2012 with the equity company and then went non-equity after that. And at the beginning of this Broadway season series that I've been doing, I spoke to Andra Lippa, who wrote the music and lyrics for that musical. Right. How was he? Excited, happy? It seems like he's in a great place. I talked to him not too long ago. He was very much like business as usual. Like he's, he's working on three projects and he's got this going and that. So I'm like, okay, so there's really no quarantine for you. You're good. Yes. He always seems to be uh, on yeah, top of things. Full steam. Right. And fifth gear. But, of course, Douglas is no slouch either. He took on the role of Gomez with gusto and was so wonderful in the role. And offstage, that same leadership and gusto was present as he led the cast and really made us a cohesive unit. For me personally, it was actually the first time I had ever been an understudy. And I was very fortunate throughout the tour to go on for both Lurch and Mal Beinecke. With director Jerry Zachs and musical supervisor Mary Mitchell Campbell, the rehearsal process was in many ways like doing a new show. Yes, there was the Broadway version, but the tour was a chance for the creatives to revamp and revisit that previous production. When I think back on the show you and I did together, that whole thing with Jerry Zachs was... It was wild. It was wild and wonderful. You know, Jerry and I had done Little Shop and it wasn't very fun. And this was much more fun with him. Much more fun. I'm sure Andrew told you it was the, it is like the most successful financial. Yeah. And the show that we created together is what's printed. Not that other thing, you know, God bless them. And that thing helped them give birth to the other thing. The first Broadway thing, you know, but when they called originally with that, you know, Stuart Oaken was a pal. I'd done an interesting piece for him with Tina Landau and Disney. And years later, he called me for Adam's family. He says, here's what we're thinking. What do you think? What do you think? And I'm like, Whoa. I was like, I didn't really get the show. When I saw it in New York, I was like, I, I don't, I'm not feeling it. You know, people don't, what are you coming to me for? Well, people don't usually think Nathan Lane, Douglas Sills. I mean, I may think that <laughs> inside, yeah. but on the outside, people don't go, oh, Nathan's not a, get Douglas. He's it. And he said, yeah, I know that. We're rethinking it. We want to do it differently. We thought maybe a little more Raul Julia and a little less Nathan, a little more sort of. And I was like, oh, so you're going to rethink it. We're going to go back into rehearsal. He says, oh, yeah, yeah, we're going to make sure. And we want you to have. And that's why that happened. Well, well, I'm certainly glad it did. It was. Uh, it, Me too, it, you. It, it's definitely one of, the, one of the highlights of my career so far. And, and, and Well, if you guys, who has ever been listening, if you could have seen Patrick go on with no notice half the time. And other times he had noticed, but he soars. When Patrick goes on in a, a role, he soars. And he had some big shoes to fill, particularly with Lurch, right? It's oh, like, yeah. Yeah, literally right? big shoes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Well, let me tell you, those that don't get to see Patrick play those roles, he's, um, he's a real asset. He's, a, he's extraordinary. No one worried. A lot of times when someone's going on, you're worried about the balance of the show and 
is everything going to sort of teeter on that person and everyone's worried. So it throws off the energy. And when you went on, no one worried, no one worried. Yeah. Mm, that's very sweet to say. Yeah. I mean, I, I was worried, especially that first time going on for How lurch. Do you not be worried. I was worried. That's Oof. like you age 20 years when somebody <laughs> says you're on. Oh, yeah. I mean, at least I had one day to shadow him. I think with, without that, I would have really been shitting bricks. But at least I had one day, one show yeah. to just figure out what are you doing. And that, you know, there were so many good things in that show I, because of the first version. You know, it's, it's an incredible privilege and, and um, luck to have all the things that may not have worked great and to be able to go on and give it another shot. That's that's a rare opportunity to say, oh, I see what won't work. Let's try choice B. Um, yep. That's really uh, a lucky situation and so much fun. So much fun. This Tony and Drama Desk Award nominee has done four national tours, in addition to the four Broadway productions, most recently Living on Love with Renee Fleming, which is a play, and the musical War Paint with Patti Lapone. Not to mention numerous off-Broadway and regional productions, but it is that Broadway debut in The Scarlet Pimpernel that Douglas is most identified and known for. That was the show that really put him on the map. And it was that image, that voice, that I had in my head as I walked into the rehearsal room for that Adams Family tour. I never told you this, but... I was very actually nervous and starstruck to meet you that first day. I, I know. But and so, and so my question is, how does it feel to be so identified with, with one role or moment in your career? It's an interesting question. You know, it, it, it depends when you ask me that. Now I'm adjusted to it and I like it and I feel blessed. I think there was a time when my idols were much more transformational actors like Alec Guinness or John Gilgood or Olivier or Kevin Spacey, sorry. There are many. And to be identified with one sort of broad stroke, heroic sweeping character wasn't what I was dreaming about. So there was a time when I kept it at bay and said, no, no, this is just one piece of me. And now I'm much more like, hey, whatever the, the universe throws my way, I will take. So I, I feel incredibly lucky to have had that moment, which sort of took my notoriety to a different place and there, therefore changed the whole professional set of opportunities that were there for me. Yeah. Um, so it's really great. You know, do I think our show was Angels in America? No. I understand that there were flaws. I can't really speak to the flaws because I never got to see it. I don't know what they were or how bad they were. Um, but the press was kind to me, shockingly kind. The um, people were just incredibly enthusiastic about the show and what I was doing. So it's a little like um, bursting through to a different place with more oxygen. You know, suddenly there's other opportunities. So I'm grateful for it. And I look back on it very fondly, probably much more fondly than during. Mm. So I just feel crazy lucky, especially you know, we've made our lives with other performers and you become intimately aware that so many performers and many performers who you know are better than you don't ever have that opportunity. Mm -hmm. And you just feel, wow, how lucky was I to get that shot where I could really use so many things that I thought I had at my disposal and things I didn't realize I had. So I just figure, wow, really lucky. And speaking of luck, like you almost didn't get that because you were actually about to head down a different career path when Scarlet Pimpernel came about. Yep. I had been working as a professional actor for 20 years. Hmm. And I just felt like um, if this is how it's going to be, I think I need something else in my life. The roles were not as varied as I wanted. I wasn't having the big mega success by getting a television show that could translate into something else. I had sort of had this business plan that if I could get a supporting role like David Hyde Pierce had, Niles Crane on Frasier, something like that, that I could then do whatever theater I wanted because I'd have marquee name. I wasn't able to execute that plan. I, I certainly had television work, but I didn't get a regular job. And I just decided it's now or never. So yeah, I, I was just not content 
if these were the nature of the roles that I was going to have for the next 20 years, I wanted to move on. So I, I thought and didn't really know what I wanted. So I figured, well, the next thing that would be interesting is maybe I'll go back to school and get that combination law degree and master's in business. And then things will open up. I'll meet interesting people, other opportunities. I didn't know what, but I thought so. So I told my agent, you know, I, guys, I love you. Thank you. I'm not going to audition anymore. Don't, don't send me out. I had to go, my scores that I'd had from college were expired. And so I took that Kaplan course. It was crazy. Hum- it took a lot of humble pie to sit there and study with 21 year olds. Um, but it was good. It was very good for the ego. It, it sort of shaves it down to something more central, uh, core. And uh, took the tests and started to get my applications and did a couple other things. I helped produce a play, a musical here. I direct, I um, coached a little bit. And then that audition came. One of my agents called and said, I know you're auditioning. I just, I just think you should look at this. And she was even more prescient and sensitive to the right things than I thought she was. And that's how the audition came about. Now, did you go into it thinking you were doing it just for your agent? Or were you thinking, oh, well, maybe maybe I'll try this acting thing some more? I don't know. It, it seemed like where I was emotionally, it was, I had to sort of kill this dream. And that's a long process. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of actors have gone through it. Now I've seen it from further away. I realize you aren't killing it. You're, you're putting it in the freezer for a while. But at the time, I thought, oh, I have to kill this dream of being an actor. And so there was a mourning and it was violent and difficult and it was my entire identity. So the idea of slipping something back in, once I read it and became familiar with the piece and I recognized that I had an old memory of the movie, it was sort of fun to prepare. Having spent a couple months not acting and started to perceive my life not being an actor, it was interesting and a little heart-wrenching to go through it again, um, to prepare the material and um, it was challenging and exciting because I knew it was a Broadway show. It wasn't a workshop. It wasn't uh, out of town regional. So it was like getting one more throw of the dice at the craps table. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I had a certain in with that character and that piece. It was a period piece. I sort of got it. I had something in my head from the old movie and it was fun to work on. And I think at the time, sort of all the time I'd spent in classical theater, really, it was helpful. It was helpful for the period. It was helpful for the dialect. It was helpful um, for breaking down the scenes and the songs into um, edible bites and processing it and creating a character. Um, So it was okay. I was praying to be rescued from this new life I started but I was prepared that the likelihood was not strong. Yeah. And it also allowed me to sort of just blow it out. Like do your best. Like, I don't care if I look stupid or whatever, cause this is the last hurrah. So it sort of helped you sort of push the pedal to the metal and take your best shot. And it did require some courage to do that stuff. Cause you're really going out on a limb in, in an audition space. You know, some of that stuff is either funny or it's not it, that heroic stuff is, it hits or it, it's way off either one. And it, it's embarrassing if it's not working. <laughs> I mean, you're going yeah. way out on a limb with that stuff. So um, it was fun and scary, I guess is the short answer. So you were with Scarlet Pimpernel. It had all these incarnations and you were with it uh, for the 1.0, 2.0, and then onto the tour. Did you hold on to it because you, you love the role, which is certainly viable? It's a great role. It's a lot of great music in there. Or did you hold on to it because it was kind of this thing that saved you from that other path? You know, we sort of look at it as having four incarnations. There's one. There was a second incarnation at the same theater. Then they moved to another theater. We call that 3.0. And then there was a tour. And I didn't do 3.0. So I did 1.0, 2, and 4. Right. And two and four were really um, why I took them and why I look back on loving them are different. Um, I took them for business reasons. The second 2.0 was really for money. They made it very worth my while. I said to him, 
the guy came in who bought the show and said, listen, we want to do it. I think we want to revamp it. I'd like you to stay. I think we're going to really change a lot of things. And I was like, oh, well, I'm really honored. But I mean, what have I got to win? I have everything to lose. I mean, I had a good review. I worked my ass off. I'm exhausted. Why would I go back into it again? You can, you can see the headlines. Sills should have quit while he was ahead. I mean, you, I, I had nowhere to go but down. And he said, so what's it going to take? And I said, money. <laughs> I, like, I mean, make it worth my while or you figure it out. Don't, you know. So they did. And I did. And it was really challenging. And 4.0, the tour, I said, yeah, you know, they asked me, would you tour this? And I said, you know what? I, I would tour some of it. How about if we tour up until Los Angeles so I could at least do it for people in Los Angeles and they maybe there'll be a TV opportunity and I can execute that business plan I had. Yeah. Um, so that was why I did the tour. Um, now, I look back on those other incarnations really fondly for other reasons. The people I met, the challenges that came up as a result of those I was becoming a different person as a result. I was becoming a stronger performer. My stamina, my endurance, my vocal endurance was getting better. My technique was getting better. So I could enjoy them more. There, there were other reasons subsequent, you know, as I look back on it, that, that they were nice experiences. I mean, a lot of us, uh, casts become like family. And your second tour was uh, The Secret Garden. And some big names that we now know were in that, including one Miss Audra McDonald. Now, what was her star power even evident back then? You want to say, oh, in hindsight, sure, I can see it. But I think during, no. I mean, there was a strong, interesting voice there, but it had that classical tone to it. And you wouldn't really see where that was going to be helpful on Broadway. Right. It had a real operatic feel. And that wasn't the sensation that was sort of, widely going on that wasn't the aesthetic the vocal aesthetic going on it still isn't but she is an she's an anomaly she's just an unusual thing um we didn't get a chance to see her acting not the way we have since then um she was a lovely woman young woman who, and we were all sort of fumbling through it's sort of like saying you know when you saw this person at their junior prom could you tell they were going to be beautiful I mean, yes and no. Um, so I would have to say, no, I was not savvy enough to see it. Yeah. You know, there was Roger Bard and James Barber was on the tour. I mean, there were other people on the tour who were very strong. And even then I knew it was a chance. Are you going to get the opportunity? It doesn't really matter how wonderful you are. If you don't get the opportunity to light the engine, it doesn't matter how powerful the engine it is. So I, I didn't know there was no predicting that Audra was going to be superstar. I mean, I could lie and say, oh, yeah, I, I saw it. But no. Is it shocking? No. Does she have the goods? Absolutely. Of course. Yeah. There's also people who have had strong careers that you're like, what the fuck? Yeah. How did that happen? How did that happen? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we never really know. And so for you, do you see the career that you've had and the, the different shows and Broadway productions you've been able to be part of as luck meets opportunity, you know, as, as they say? No question. Opportunity meets readiness. Certainly with Pimpernel. Yeah. You know, you can be, you, you must be as ready as you can be for almost any eventuality. And then you just kind of wait. Now, when I'm like talking to younger performers, I have a different feeling about how you can increase your chances. But I wasn't savvy about that then, um, about initiating your own projects, about making a short film with an iPhone, about you know having readings or developing your own theater company. Or I mean, there are other things you can and should do in addition to waiting for auditions or networking. So. Um, I feel like I was really lucky um, and right for the roles that I've gotten and missed out on things that I wish I'd had a shot at or didn't get. Of course, there are always those. But yeah, um, I think I was just really lucky and tried to be as ready as I could because I wasn't your standard. I mean, 
you know, neither is Audra for that matter. And I don't even put myself in that category, certainly. But you look around, you're like, well, these people that come forward and become big stars, despite their Leslie Jordan, like what you would tell this young person, no, you should not go into the bit. So, you know, I, I was not particularly appropriate for any, I wasn't quite handsome enough. I wasn't quite funny looking enough. I, on the inside, I sort of felt like Woody Allen, but on the outside, I looked not really Jewishy nerdy. <laughs> so I was not a sort of fit into, I just didn't fit into the types. Um, I mean, hard work, no question. I worked hard at it. And there are plenty of people we know who sort of fall into it. Um, that was not the case for me. But at the same time, very lucky. White, male in America, um, not terrible to look at, strong voice in some areas. So I was, you know, just really lucky. Right, because uh, after the, the Little Shop revival, uh, you had about a 10-year gap of, of no Broadway, at least, but you obviously stayed busy. What was that 10-year gap? There was about three years from 07, January, February of 07, to 10, where I stopped acting again and took over this family business. I left. It wasn't my plan to do it. It sort of happened. My father passed suddenly. My sister had been doing it for a little while. It wasn't a good fit. And suddenly I found myself there and acquiescing to stay there. Um, so I stopped acting. And was it an intentional stoppage or just kind of one month led to another and then three years have gone by? It, it was that. And, and that's intentional, but it wasn't planned. No, it wasn't premeditated. I mean, I take responsibility for all my choices. It's not like, oh, they thrust it upon me. And you could certainly make that case, but you can walk away anytime you want. And I didn't. So, um, yeah. And I didn't know when I was going to go back to acting, if ever. I assumed never. And even if I wanted to, who, who can step? It's tough enough doing it. But to step away for a period of time and then expect to be able to come back, you know, that's outrageous. Um, I think there were there were regional gigs. There was time here again looking for television in Los Angeles. I may have just decided with my partner at the time that we needed to be together, and that would have brought me to Los Angeles. So there, when you're in LA, you're you're sort of out of the running for Broadway leading roles. It's not outrageously thought. It, it's possible to get into a Broadway show, but you know, there's what five, ten guys who are going to play a leading role on Broadway. And if you're not there, it's tough to be in that little club. You, it's out of sight, out of mind for the producers and the casting people. So when I decided to test the waters to go back to perform after taking over the family business in Michigan, you know, I started with like an encore. Somebody talked to me about a mm -hmm. reading and then there was an encore for two weeks and then there was a month long workshop of something. Because was Adam's family the big step back into it again? Yeah. It really was. It was sort you know, we I'd separate and see how much I could still accomplish with the business in my off hours via technology, email and so forth. And we'd make adjustments and then the business became much more self-reliant. It didn't need me every day and I could spend more time away. And um, that allowed me to to take on the Adams family idea. You know, during rehearsals it's very tough to do something else if you're doing a lead role. You're it's a full time Absolutely. thing. Once you get into performance, if you get the thing under your belt and you sort of know what, what you can and can't do during the day, um, it's easier to make contributions to something else. But, and I like being busy and sort of having my plate very full. I like to be challenged like that. So it was interesting and fun. And let's face it, Adam's Family isn't exactly Hamlet. You know, while it was challenging, it's not like, where is this going to come from? And, oh, my God, you know. It's not. Gomez is, I mean, you were brilliant at it, but it's also a fun character. Right, yeah. Yeah, there wasn't the gnashing of teeth for every performance that you had to be ready for. In working with you on the Adams Family Tour, your, your, your leadership and your being yourself with the cast, it, was, came, it came from so much of just you being who you are, who Doug is. And so how did you discover who the real Doug is? And, and, and find that, that confidence and vulnerability to, 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 be, to be so genuine. I think because so many of us uh, as actors, we, we take on a part even in our real lives. That's interesting. I haven't thought of it that way. 
You know, I don't know. I don't know. I think I try to be curious so that in all my work leading up to that show, I'm learning about watching other leading players and how they treat the cast, watching how if a producer is generous, kind, and caring to the cast, has that created a better product? And I I guess it may be natural for a person to think, well, if I ever get to that place, I'll remember X, Y, and Z. And I was not a child when that happened. I, I had a lot of life experience under me. I had left the business twice. I valued it in a new, different way that had so much wonderful light emanating from it in a good way that had less perhaps ego stuff. Um, I understood what it was and what it wasn't. And I think, how would I want to be treated if I were in this cast? And that's not difficult to do. Actors are eager to work. They will bust their asses Mm -hmm. for you. And if you treat them with the slightest generosity or caring, generally there's a nice response. And if you're going to live together on the road, like people are not going back to their houses at night, you sort of need a good, what do they call that stuff in a Petri dish? You need a good medium to exist in so that each time you go to the stage, you know, for those of you who don't, Patrick is an incredible comedian and you know that the slightest thing can throw off a comedic moment. If a person is not rooting for you and they're standing behind you, all they have to do is this at the wrong time. The slightest adjustment. The joke is shot. Shot. So it's important that you're all rooting for each other. And it was very important to me that the cast was rooting for me to win each night. And I watched leaders who appeared to be leaders like Jerry Orbach. I was, I mean, too young to know him, but... There were people who were leaders that I admired, both on stage and off stage, that you know, you just treat people kindly and and look for fairness and um and compassion in their lives. So I guess that was sort of how I felt about it. We we were touring and I had toured both happily and unhappily, and I didn't think it was brain surgery to make it a happy experience. People actors just need so little. They just need so little to be go, oh my God. I mean. On a Saturday afternoon, after a week of rehearsing, like hell, if you buy ice cream for everybody, <laughs> actors are like, yeah, right? It's like, please, sir, may I have some more? Just take care of them. If they feel taken care of, I think you get a better product, and certainly it's more fun to work together. Um, so I guess that's that was my take on it. Um, and, and like we said, it's a, it's a comedy, and it was about family, and all that stuff, you know, listen, if it was, you know, The Lower Depths by Gorky or um, uh, Iceman Cometh, where everybody's an adult and it's a real downer, it's like, you don't need, to, I, they wouldn't need me to sort of be kind. to Everybody's an adult. They're going to go home and have their thing. But if I perceived a vacuum, I would probably step in as a father or leader. Yeah. If I perceive that someone already is doing that and it's appropriate, I will back off from it. So I've been in shows where I was supporting and there was somebody who should have been doing it and they were, and I didn't do that. I supported them if they wanted help doing it, being a leader or helping the cast to stay together or plan things or taking care of them. I would certainly help. But so I must've sensed that it was appropriate that I step into that position. You had mentioned that not altering experiences were great. What were some of those ingredients that made it not so great being on tour? Being blue, depressed, tough family stuff going on, homesick, loneliness, uh, maybe I got tired of the role, Uh, maybe there wasn't enough challenge, I didn't feel heard or taken care of by the company manager, maybe I didn't ask, maybe I didn't know to ask, hey, could I have two days off, hey, do you think I could understudy, hey, do you think I could go on next time, I need a challenge, or as I said, it's not brain surgery, I was young and, you know, producers are there to make money, many, and they don't know to hunt for problems or unhappiness, unhappy people. My first big tour 
was Into the Woods national tour. And I had just lost my brother like six months earlier. And it was a very tough tour for me. I didn't really ask what was going on. But, you know, there were periods of real blue periods for me. And everybody has these challenges in their life going on. I mean, hopefully not as severe as that. But so tour can be challenging. And, and, and if the group can acknowledge that somebody's going through a tough time and support them, whatever that means, um, it can make a huge difference. They can't fix a person, but compassion and, and uh, understanding and maybe a little leeway with the rules can make a big difference. Yeah, I would say that was one of the biggest differences between the Adams Family Tour and then I did the Avita Tour right after. The, the cast was great, talented people, yet I didn't feel that same being taken care of by the, the management. And so I left that tour after nine months. I was like, I got to get out of here. So it, it can be the smallest thing. Yeah, that's true. I hadn't thought of that. Right. And, and, and you reap the benefits with these little things that make the cast happier or feel taken care of. They stay on longer. People take care of each other. They take care of the, their own needs. And, um, you know, there's always somebody, oftentimes there's somebody in the cast that can be an energy sucker or they're passive aggressive or they, they, they play the victim and, if that is like a skin tag and falls off, you, you realize the whole system works better. So I, I think you bring up a good point that, it, that the product becomes more stable and that's good for business um, if the performers are taken care of. That includes the crew that's touring. Obviously, you know, that, of course. Right. Yeah. In your career, you've, you're known as a musical theater performer, but you did get to do a, a play with Renee Fleming even though she got to do some singing in it, uh, was the process any different at all when it comes to just being able to, to act as opposed to sing? Yeah, any, any different, yes. Hugely different. Well, physically it's different. You know, I, I, am, I have more reputation on the East Coast for musicals, but on the West Coast, no, because it's where I went to graduate school. So, you know, up and down the West Coast, I'm known for plays, I think, more. Um, and that's just how it worked out. And that was my thing. And I really wanted to continue to do both. I didn't want to be sequestered in either straight play camp or musicals. And I paid the price for that, wanting to be able to go back and forth. And there was a there is a price. Um, but it's just so refreshing to be able to go back and forth. It makes you appreciate the one that you're not doing and the one you are doing, you appreciate in its, in its waves. For example, when you're in a play, the exact condition of your vocal cords is just not as important. It's just not. And people that only do straight plays don't understand how difficult that is. So that's refreshing and, and, and it makes life so much more uh, pleasant. You don't have to worry about every little thing. And that goes with what time is it? What are you eating? Uh, what are you drinking? When? Uh, what is the high note? You know, where are you? Is it what season? Your allergy? I mean, you know, yeah. you know. But people that don't do it don't really know how delicate that instrument can be. And what this crazy thing is of eight a week <laughs> for musicians, for, for vocalists. I mean, it's just insane what they're asking people to do. I went to see that Frozen and I was just watching. I was like, my God. Right, just wailing. Yeah, right? Anyway, I have done a lot of plays and I, I hope that will continue. And um, it also really makes me a better actor to be both. I think I approach plays differently than most straight theater actors because of my experience in musicals and the reverse as well. So in musicals, sometimes where the work is sometimes shallower, it allows me to stand out more because I think I, I'll start from a different place than most actors who don't do plays. And there are, listen, it, there's a lot of people that cross over now, but many don't, or many haven't had the opportunity. And so I think it's, uh, it's an asset for me, but it does come at a price. And the price is, you know, you, you may not get as far in either particular avenue because you keep going back and forth. Mm -hmm. So you, you sort of mess up your own momentum within that genre by leaving. Then if, you were if it was just musicals and I never left that realm or just straight plays, because there is a division and a lot of people don't cross over a lot. And there's also prejudice. Like, well, if he's doing Thoroughly Modern Millie, he's not going to be doing Chekhov. Well, that's just not true, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, Alfred Molina's doing um, Tevya 
and then he's doing red. So there, there are people, but we do people in our business and humans in general have preconceived notions. We're just more comfortable putting people in boxes. So I like having both and being able to do both and being known for both. Yeah. Like this last thing I did, Mac and Mabel, that was to me more of an acting thing, more of a play with music, um, at least in my approach with it this last time. Now, you'd mentioned seeing Frozen, which just announced that it won't be reopening once Broadway comes back. Was there a show or two that closed prematurely that, that really hit you hard that you wished had had another life? <laughs> um, that's funny. I think that's true a lot. I, I guess, you know, I don't think I've ever been in a big blockbuster hit you know, do I wish the little shop thing had gone on? Yes, but I guess in some ways it's survival of the fittest. You know, it just wasn't strong enough to continue. So maybe maybe that's fine. But I certainly enjoyed doing that part. Um, is that the case with, uh, you know, I did this one night of uh, on the 20th century and then it was such a big hit that this big producer, Bob Greenblatt, tried to put it, mount it. Do I wish that that had had more of a life? Absolutely. I think that would have been great fun. Um, I was, we were having a lot of fun in that Rene Fleming piece. Again, I'm not in the audience. I, I, I have to feel like if it, if it does, you know what I mean? When I say if it deserved and should have gone on, it would have. Maybe that's not true. That's a generalization. But I think in this case, maybe that was true. Maybe it wasn't strong enough, but we certainly were having fun and the audience seemed to be enjoying it. Now, that was the case with Pimpernel. I mean, the audiences seemed to be having a fantastic time, but the critic came in and said, this is terrible, essentially, the first time. He's yeah. great. Douglas is great, but the show doesn't work. Um, and that's hard to bear. But, um, you know, I did this play called um, Ride the Tiger about John Kennedy, and it was fascinating, and how the play was written was fascinating. I wish that had had more of a life. It was a five-character play. And wonderful actors. Just, it was great. We did it at Long Wharf. I wish that that had had more of a life. Do you feel like you're at, at a certain place in your career that your expectations are higher or that you need certain things? It, like, I know, like, whenever I started, I was making 150 bucks a week. Now, of course, I would never do that. When I was younger, though, I was like, yes, give it to me. I'll do this. I'll do that. But we graduate, I think, to different levels. Yeah, and that changes for me. Sometimes if I've been away from it for six months or eight months, I'm more likely to take something less perfect, a situation, just to get back on like, yeah, I really want to do this. Sometimes if you're just out of something, you're tired and you're like, oh, no, no, I'm not getting, no, not with that person. No, I'm not leaving for, you know. So yes, the bar is higher for me to get involved. Sometimes I need a push. And usually I'm glad I did, almost always. You know, somebody asked me to go to Australia for a year. That was tough. That was tough to consider. I mean, it was a difficult decision. Um, so the place is important, who you're working with. You know, if it's a play that you really, the two people need to be great together. And if it's a person I don't know or haven't heard great things about, I might think twice. I got to do this uh, John Guare play called His Girl Friday, which was he created from the movies front page and His Girl Friday. Yeah. And I'm really glad I did it. I, you know, I met this wonderful woman to play opposite. We got to do it in La Jolla with Chris Ashley and um, we've remained friends. So things like that will make a big difference. I'm really glad we did that. Because it seems like at this point, you're less under those self-imposed expectations on yourself. Yeah. yeah you just get to a point where you're like, it does, just doesn't matter that much you get through enough of life, you know, you know, you just get to a place where your happiness and health, health, health is everything. It's everything. And the health of those around you. And then you get into, you know, finances, like, do I have enough money for rent and food and uh, birthday presents? And, you know, it's just, there are other things that are more important. And for a long time, I did everything, but it was all about work. And I wouldn't go to graduations or weddings or bar mitzvahs or bris or funeral. You know, if it didn't work out, it was work first, theater and 
Um, what do you think is important or how do you find that balance? I, just listening and re- recognizing I was sad or blue or unhappy, n- not living all the parts of my life and wanting to go to home or to see my family at important holidays or, you know, when I recognized I was missing something and missing the rituals of life. Hmm. Um, I don't have any great words of wisdom that you're not going to read if you Google Bartlett's quotations. I'm not smart enough, but you know, you're just trying to stay self-aware. And I mean, that's what we do as an actor. We have to look inside and there are other benefits of that. Are you unhappy? What's missing? You, or you go to one of them, you get a chance, let's say to go to a Christmas party and you're like, Jesus, I need to do this more. This is crazy. I'm missing connections and intimacy and having a life. So yeah, I need to go to these more. And that's what happened with Pimperdale, actually. You know, when the audition came up and I prepped and I went to New York to audition. Now, I had already started re-examining my life. As you know, we just talked about not acting anymore. And a favorite aunt of mine passed away. And her, you know, in the Jewish faith, they get buried like 24 to 48 hours after they pass away. And it's difficult to communicate, but there was an overlap. So it it turned out to be in short term... uh, either the audition or the funeral. Mm. And it was a big turning point for me because I had already left the business and here it was sort of spitting on me again and sort of saying, what's it going to be, Sills? What's it going to be? And I, I thought about it and I, it was a real turning point. I said, I'm not, I am not missing her funeral. I'm just not. And I called them and said, I'm, I'm not going to make it. Now I had really prepared this audition and I had had my mindset, like, as we talked about, maybe this is a rescue from me having to go do something else. What if, what if, what if, like a gambler wanting to keep playing. And as it turns out, when I was going to New York for her funeral, which was the same flight I was going anyway for Pimpernel, they lost my bags. It was late. I had to take a cab to the funeral. I arrived they're carrying the wooden box to the hole in the ground where they're putting her. There's about five or six family members. I said, stop, stop, stop. I'm in my sweatpants from the plane because they lost my bag. I said to the family, you stay here. You, you, you have to open that box. And they're like, what? I said, I, you don't understand. I've given up a lot to be here today. And I am exhausted and dirty and my breath stinks and I'm in sweatpants and I am not going to let her go into the ground without me seeing her. I'm going to see her. And these four guys who are just, you know, whatever, they're just trying to lower this box into the ground on a rope. They're not part of the family, you know. And I said, told the family, you stay over there. I still can't believe it as I'm telling the story. And, and they look at each other like, what? what? I said, just open it just for a second. Just open the box. So for Jews, there's no nails. It's all wooden. The coffin, it's a very simple, plain wooden box. And it's just like little knobs that keep the lid on. So there's no nails. It's not like, yeah. you know. So the, the box is on a rope. It's halfway in the hole. It's sort of like this. And they open it and slide it across. And I was petrified to see her. And I insisted on seeing her. I had to have closure. And uh, there she was. <laughs> it was awful and wonderful. And she was sort of crook-necked because the box was like this. So the box was pushing her head up. Right. Like, She'd been moved. Yeah. I said, sorry, Tess. I'm, I'm so sorry about this, Tess. I said, I looked and we sh- I spent like five minutes with her. And I said, okay, guys, thanks. Close her up. <laughs> so um, that, was a, that was a great turning point about going to, you know, family stuff, rituals, like important life stuff. As it turns out, they call back about the Pimperdale thing. They said, hey, you know what? Do you still want to go in? Because they're going to go to LA. I was like, oh, because I had gotten rid of it in here. I said, uh, okay. And they showed up in LA and... And there you go. So, I mean, it, it's, it's one of those things like there are no accidents. It, it just seems like that the show was meant to have you in it and things worked their ways as, as they do to make sure that happened. I'm not a great believer. I know that there's a lot of variance in it, but 
you know, in predestination or things happen or you're supposed to be in it or you're, you know, my brother passed away in a plane crash and it changes your whole, for me, it changes your whole worldview about random events. Mm. And I sort of think of life as much more random because of it, I think. And so when people say, well, you're supposed to learn a lesson, that's why this is happening or that's happening. It's not my thing. I think you can learn a lesson. You can create a lesson out of a difficult circumstance, but I don't know about this supposed to thing or there's another plan for you or yeah, that just, I've carried that trauma with me as we all have traumas in our life. There's nothing special about mine, but it changed how I looked at sort of life events. I think with everything, there's balance there. I think there are those things that are meant to happen. And I think there are those things that like, like why is life making this happen? And yes, we can see the positive. We can learn something from whatever comes our way. I mean, hopefully we're doing that in life, no matter what it is, but hopefully we are. Yes. But yeah, sometimes shit just happens and you just have to like get through it and get to another day. Right. That's it. Listen, good stuff happens. Bad stuff happens. You're incredibly fortunate. It's like, just if you want to find a lesson, go make a lesson out of it. Great. That's what I do. But you know, a supposed to, or here you're supposed to, because they want you to, or it wants, or the universe I think the universe is too busy to worry about me. That's what I, I you know, yeah. it's like, oh, yeah. they got plenty to do. Well, it certainly seems like that, that Douglas Sills is very comfortable in his own skin. You know who you are at this point. And so at this, at this point, both in your life, personally, professionally, does, does it feel like that, you, that you've made it, that you've achieved or have come to a, a place where you want to be? In a lot of ways, yes. I have accepted the wonderful things and I try to be aware of them and the difficult things I think I've absorbed and, you know, do I have a Tony award? Did I really want one? Did I really want to aspire to sort of have another Pimpernel in my life? Sure. Um, That's not happened so far and that's okay. I've learned, you know, did I want children? Did, did, do I wish my parents were still alive? You know, of course there are difficult things, but, I would say in general, I know what you're asking. And I think to, to a large degree, that's true. But really, because I'm fortunate, I'm so, so lucky. You, if, you, if you watch TV or you, you remain a, an aware person, you can't help but think, in my case, how lucky you are. So do I hope for more things? Do I wish for more things? Yeah, sure. It's an interesting time in life for me. You know, I'm 30. This year, I'll be 30. When you hit 30, you want some different things. Yes, I think in some, the answers to your question is, yeah, I think in a lot of ways I'm more settled and happier. You know, the truth is when you get a little bit older, you just care less about what people think. How will this turn out? Which was harder to, to get rid of the expectations from other people or from yourself? I don't know. It feels like sort of a two-headed monster. It's, it's sort of all one giant beast that isn't growing out of something good. Expectations, others and your own. Just try and be in the moment. Um, that seems to be a happier place to live. Those are both difficult things, especially um, for a performer, um, for a gay man. It's certainly not now what it was when I was coming up as a young leading man. It was a real no go, certainly in television. It's unbelievable where we are now with it and fantastic, but it's a different world. So um, was there a lot of bullshit that came along, self-imposed, imposed from the outside? Sure. Expectations. Yeah, that'll kill you. And you're always battling it. You just go in for an audition and, you know, you want to do great. And sometimes it goes okay. And sometimes it doesn't. And you know, oftentimes it doesn't because you're worried what they think and what should I choose and what should I wear? And, oh, I didn't do good. And they think you did great. No, I don't think I did. And, you know, all that stuff that gets in the way um, because auditions are such an unusual art form. So many things come into play, mm-hmm. like making a souffle while having intercourse in front of a hundred people. It's, it's just, <laughs> you know, there's so many little things that can sort of make the whole thing go. Um, yeah. So, uh, 
yeah, the two-headed monster of self-expectations and, and others, worrying about others' expectations. It's important. I don't know if you can ever slay that dragon, but you sort of want to just try not to feed it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> try not to let it grow too big and uh, stay aware of its presence. So yeah, I'm a, as much of a victim of it as everyone else. I just try to, when I feel it, I go, whoa, that's not me. That's not going to help. And you get older and you're like, oh, right. That's what that feeling is. Let go of that. As opposed to don't think of it. Don't, you know, you can't. It's also, uh, you see those like people turning a pot on a wheel and they're sometimes doing these really delicate things. And you just got to be in the moment with it. You have an image, but sometimes the clay has its own and the temperature in the root and your hands and oi. (laughs) Yeah. Let go of that. As with most life lessons, it's much easier said than done. But I love Doug's analogy of that potter's wheel, because we all do have an idea of what our career, of what the roles should look like, the shows that we do, the ones that we want to create. We have an idea of what it should be. But Clay has a mind of its own, just as this career does, just as the people behind the table do. We can only do so much. If the clay wants to go in a certain direction, sometimes we just have to go in that direction. Or, in the case of Doug, we just start all over again with a fresh, new pile of clay and see what we can create from that. I don't know about you, but today's conversation certainly hit home to me in many different ways. It gave me a lot to think about as an artist and the decisions and choices I want to make going forward. Well, I certainly hope you've enjoyed this look at previous Broadway seasons with the artists and creatives I've had here on the podcast. Next month is Pride Month, and so I'll be featuring LGBT artists that have made their mark on this industry. As we head into the summer months, I'm also going to be reaching out to you for your help as the season continues throughout the rest of this year. Your thoughts and opinions on what the show is doing, what it needs to be doing better, and ways that the WinMe community can truly be a support for each other. And speaking of support, I want to give a special shout out to Alina, Megan, and Robin, as they, along with others, have generously donated to the furthering of this podcast. I wouldn't be here without you, the listener, and your support truly means the world to me. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, thanking you for joining me, and let's get together next time as we talk more about why I'll never make it. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.